how can we combine the old words in new orders so that they survive, so that they create beauty, so that they tell the truth? That is the question. And the person who could answer that question would deserve whatever crown of glory the world has to offer. Think what it would mean if you could teach or if you could learn the art of writing, why every book, every newspaper you pick up would tell the truth or would create beauty. Good evening. I'm Roxana Robinson, and on behalf of the board of Penn American Center, I'd like to welcome you all to the third in Penn's series of tributes to masters of 20th century letters, the last two held in conjunction with The New Yorker. At that magazine, we'd like to thank David Remnick, our valued partner, who unfortunately had to be out of the country tonight. To introduce ourselves, Penn is a fellowship of writers that advances the cause of literature and reading in the United States and defends free expression around the world. For organizing this event, the board would like to thank Bradford Morrow and the Penn Forums Committee, as well as Michael Roberts, our director, and our able and much appreciated staff, Tamara Moskowitz, Zoe Rosenfeld, and Lexi Neonakis. We'd also like to thank all the participants tonight, most especially Fiona Shaw, who's traveled from England to be here, and Zoe Caldwell, who's directed this beautiful production, and also Douglas Hall, our stage manager. Now, tonight we're celebrating Virginia Woolf, whose luminous presence lights up the landscape of 20th century literature, sweeping a broad and powerful beam across the world of letters. That metaphor was unavoidable, I'm sorry. <laughs> there was almost nothing in this world that she did not explore. She was an innovator who experimented boldly with style and content. She was a critic of ferocious intelligence, challenging in her ideas and fearless in her arguments. Most importantly, she was a novelist of extraordinary depth, producing spectacularly elegant prose which was animated by emotion as well as intellect. And besides the work, there was the woman herself, her elegiac beauty, the lethal seductive glitter of her madness, and her harrowing, unthinkable death. All these play a part in her fascination for us. Right now, Virginia Woolf is singing. Her books sell by the thousands. She is firmly entrenched in the literary canon, and her photograph adorns the best-selling postcard at the National Gallery in London. But it hasn't always been so. In the late 1960s, I met a young woman called Virginia Woolf with one O. I commented on her name, and she said, slightly aggrieved, that before the production in 1966 of Edward Albee's play, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, few people recognized her name. Only the literary cognoscenti, she said. It's hard to imagine that now. One of the things responsible for the change in Woolf's reputation was the women's movement of the 1970s. It's slightly paradoxical, since Woolf didn't call herself a feminist, belonged to no such movement, and concerned herself with a wide range of topics besides women's issues. But she wrote in a woman's voice, and she wrote about the issues of gender. She believed that a woman's experience was different from that of a man. She believed they were equally important, and she argued those facts both in her fiction and her nonfiction. Woolf located much of her fiction in the domestic world of the upper middle class woman. She knew very well that this was considered limited, frivolous, and trivial. She showed triumphantly that it was not. 
She showed that a world composed of dinner parties and summer houses, family and close friends, could be vast in its scope, complex and whole, alive with feeling, luminous with intelligence, and radiant with compassion. In her nonfiction, too, Wolfe challenged the misogyny that she found in the literary world. In a dispassionate voice, impeccably composed, amused, and urbane, she calmly delivered the facts, weaving them artfully into a narrative that seems effortlessly to gather power and inexorability as it proceeds. Wolfe's popularity today reveals the success of her efforts. She showed us that a woman's world can be the source of great literature, and that a woman's voice can be as powerful as a man's, and that a woman's intellect can tower. But I want to leave you with more than just Virginia Woolf, the writer, so here's a glimpse of her as a person. Nigel Nicholson, the son of Vita Sackville West and a distinguished Woolf scholar, has kindly allowed us to quote from his new biography of Woolf to be published in the Lipper Viking Penguin Lives series next fall. And here's the quote. We did not think of her as famous. Indeed, when we first knew her, she wasn't. She was like a favorite aunt who brightened our lives with unexpected questions. What is the French mistress at your school like? What sort of shoes does she wear? Can you smell her scent when she comes into the classroom? It was a lesson in observation, but it was also a hint. Nothing has really happened until it has been described, she said to me. She seemed to us an indoor person, autumnal rather than summery, happiest when warming her hands at a log fire, and talking, 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 in a deep, slightly sing-song voice, which you've just heard tonight, teasing, provocative, drawing back her hair from her forehead as if to clear her mind. One incident at Monk's house with Vita and other friends remains very clearly in my memory. We sat in the sitting room, and the discussion, I forget what it was about, grew animated. Virginia, standing by the fireplace, was arguing excitedly when Leonard slowly rose from his chair and gently touched her on the shoulder. Without inquiry or protest, she followed him from the room, and they were absent for about a quarter of an hour. Nobody made any comment when they returned, since everyone except myself knew exactly what had happened. In her excitement, Virginia might have overstepped the bounds of sanity, and Leonard, observing her closely, took her away to calm down. When I read, in some accounts of their relationship, allegations that Leonard neglected her, even drove her to suicide, I think of that incident. The gesture with which he touched her on the shoulder was almost biblical in its tenderness, and her submission to him indicated a trust that she awarded to no other person. Thank you. Hello, I'm Michael Cunningham. Oh. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I published a novel called The Hours, um, a sort of riff on Wolfe's novel, Mrs. Dalloway, which has enjoyed a success that's entirely astonishing to me. It even helped get Mrs. Dalloway on the Amazon.com bestseller list for a few weeks. Virginia, yeah, I, was, I was good for business. Um, and I have been touring a lot, endlessly engaged in, in self and shameless self-promotion. Um, <clears throat> and so 
find myself being asked more questions about Virginia Woolf than, than most people are. And a lot of them are variations on who is Virginia Woolf and what did she do to become so famous as to have a play in a movie named after her? Um, which is, of course, a slightly difficult question to answer. Uh, and I, and I, I assume everyone here, by virtue of the fact that you're here, um, don't need to know the answer to that question. But I do want to talk to you just a little bit about my relationship to Wolf and to Mrs. Dalloway in particular as, as a novelist. Um, Mrs. Dalloway was the first great book I ever read. I was 15. I was a not very promising student at a not very good public high school in Southern California where I read the books that I was made to read but thought of literature essentially as a sort of dying art form. What I was going to be was a rock musician. Um, <laughs> admirably undaunted, I think, by the fact that I had no talent whatsoever. <laughs> My interest was really in standing on a stage in leather pants. Um, <clears throat> So I was, uh, I was out having a cigarette where we went to have cigarettes and uh, suddenly found myself standing beside the pirate queen of our school. Every school has a kid or two like this, so I, can't, I, still, I still think of her as a woman, as a 16-year-old woman. Um, she was beautiful and mean and smart, and she had long red fingernails and, uh, and long straight hair and fringe pretty much everywhere. Um, <clears throat> And I found myself standing next to her and thought, uh-oh, uh-oh, think fast, be suave, say something that will make her love you forever. Um, <clears throat> so I said something that I, I thought then, and, and, and think today was actually very, very winning about, about the poetry of Bob Dylan and, and Leonard Cohen. And um, she was actually very kind to me. Um, she kind of took a, she sucked in her entire Marlboro in one drag. Um, <laughs> but the ash didn't fall. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I'm standing there trying to look as dangerous as it's possible to look while smoking one of your mother's Kents. And, um, <laughs> and she exhaled an immense cloud of smoke and said, well, yes, they're very good, but how do you feel about T.S. Eliot and Virginia Woolf? <laughs> now, I wasn't completely illiterate. I, had heard of T.S. Eliot and Virginia Woolf, and I knew Virginia Woolf was very tall and insane and lived in a lighthouse and um, jumped in the ocean, but I never expected to actually have to read either one of them. So really, I, I, well, I, know, I, know, I know we're all friends here, so I can admit this to you. I, I, um, I went to the library to try to, imp to be impressive to this girl, um, the bookmobile little trailer where the books were, and um, they didn't have any Eliot. They did have one book of Wolf's, and it was Mrs. Dalloway. And I took it out and took it home and read it, tried to read it. I mean, I didn't know what was going on in that book. I was 15 and not, a, not an especially bright 15, but in another way, I did get it. I did get the depth and density and complexity and music of those sentences, and it did turn on some little light inside my stupid little skull. I mean, um, I think everybody who reads, certainly everybody here tonight, has a first book 
Not the first book you read, but the, not, maybe not the first book you, you ever read, but the first book that connects for you, the first book that shows you what literature can be, like a first kiss. Um, and you read other books, you probably kiss other people, but especially for those of us who are romantically inclined, there, there, there's something, that first book stayed with me. I felt wedded to it in a way that I've never felt about any other book. Um, and finally, finally, finally grew up and, and wrote this sort of uh, riff in which I tried to take an existing work of great art and make another work of art out of it, the way a jazz musician might play improvisations on a great piece of music. And I've learned so much from Wolf as a writer. I think maybe what I learned most importantly from Mrs. Dalloway and, and, and from, from most of her books was um, her conviction that the whole of human existence, while it is, is copiously contained in foreign wars and the deaths of kings and the other big subjects for big novels, is also contained in every hour in the life of everybody, very much the way the blueprint for the whole organism is contained in every strand of its DNA. Um, and if you look at any hour in the life of anybody with sufficient penetration and sufficient art, you can crack it open and get everything. And I'm spending most of my life trying to do that. She understood that every character, no matter how minor in a novel she wrote, was visiting that novel from a novel of his or her own, where he or she was the hero of a great tragic and comic tale. And well, I'll, 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 I'll just leave it there, but it's thrilling to have an opportunity to sort of um, bow down before her spirit in, in big public like this. And uh, is there a picture of her up there? Oh, no. Well, um, I, bow, I bow down to you, Virginia Woolf, um, wherever you are. Good night. I'm Mary Gordon. And I'm going to talk to you about The Waves. The Waves is Virginia Woolf's most difficult book. It is a difficult book by any standards, and its difficulty and its greatness are intertwined. Part of the difficulty is inherent in the form. There are six narrative voices, long sections, separated by pure descriptions of the ocean, but only the loosest of narratives. It requires an attentiveness of reading that is sometimes exhausted, and people have been exhausted by it. This is because the waves is entirely saturated, saturated by Wolf's own relentless observation, the quality of her seeing, the pure lyric intensity that drenches every sentence. The soil of this book is entirely porous. There are no dry spots that the mind's feet can skate or slide over. We must be with her at every moment, 
riding alongside her on the galloping horse of her rhythms as Bernard gallops at the end, his lance couched, defying death. It is all written against a background of death and the sea, Wolfe says of this book in her diary. Death and the sea provide the background, but the subject is life, or life seen as consciousness. The doubleness of anguish and exultation is the body's own. For the waves suggests that we learn who we are and what life is through the body. In his last soliloquy, Bernard, the summer up, recalls a moment from a childhood bath. He says, Mrs. Constable raised the sponge above her head, squeezed it, and out shot right and left all down the spine, arrows of sensation. And so, as long as we draw breath for the rest of time, if we knock against a chair, a table, or a woman, we are pierced with arrows of sensation. Sometimes, indeed, when I pass a cottage with a light in the window where a child has been born, I could implore them not to squeeze the sponge over that new body. Sensation, consciousness bring gifts, and also desolation when the gifts are taken back or so far obscured as to be inaccessible. It seems we go on living, Rhoda notes. It is an exhausting and dangerous prospect, this living, taking place as it does against the backdrop of death. But there are moments of great beauty, great value, some of them in the company of friends. We have proved, sitting eating, sitting talking, that we can add to the treasury of moments, Bernard says. If we compare the waves to two other great first-person narratives, Notes from Underground and A la Recherche du Temps Perdu, we find in Wolfe glimpses not only of joy, but of life's goodness, that the other writers nowhere provide. Certainly, Proust grants us moments of aesthetic bliss, the Hawthorns, the Sea at Baalbek, the Sonatas of Ventoy, the Charms of Odette. But for Proust, human connection is a snare, a distraction from the important work of contemplation, apprehension, and creation. Dostoevsky's underground man finds the possibility of friendship risible to the point of nausea. Wolf, on the other hand, by the very nature of her structure, insists on the possibilities of human connection and indeed interpenetration. Bernard, who speaks for the other characters, is not sure whether he is himself or an entity made up of himself and his friends, a six-sided flower, as he calls it. Singularity may be a chimera, it is moments of union, moments only to be sure, that strike the spine with the piercing and enlivening arrows of sensation. And yet, for some, like the character Rhoda, like Wolf herself a suicide, these moments are not strong enough to make up for the ordeal, the horror of living. In her diary, Wolf refers to the form of this novel as a poem play. If it is a play, it is a play with six characters, Bernard, Ginny, Neville, Susan, Rhoda, and Lewis. Or perhaps it is a play with only one character having six sides. 
The plot is a series of variations of the story, This Is Who I Am. As a poem, and it's important that it includes the entire text of one of the greatest English poems, O Western Wind, the waves relies importantly on images, images repeated, images with changes rung upon them, as an essential way the I knows itself as the I. Each of the six characters bears within him or herself an image that he or she carries from childhood through old age. For Bernard, it is words that bubble up from the bottom of a saucepan. For Lewis, it is the great beast on the shore that stamps and stamps. For Ginny, it is the body that puts forth a frill. For Susan, the hard thing, her grief, her anger, that she screws up into a pocket handkerchief. For Neville, it is the path of the Latin language through the sand and boys eating bananas out of a paper sack. For Rhoda, the petals that she rocks in her brown basin and the swallow who dips his wings in a pool at the end of the world. And there are sentences in the waves that have the lapidary quality of great lines of blank verse, sentences that lodge forever in the memory. I often find myself repeating sentences from the waves at moments of stress. I hear Neville's, the reign of chaos is ended, knives cut, when I have found my lost keys or discovered that I have not, in fact, run out of toilet paper. <laughs> or all too often in my life, in circumstances too obvious to be gone into here, I hear Susan's words, I shall be debased and hidebound by the bestial and beautiful passion of maternity. I shall push the fortunes of my children unscrupulously. I shall hate those who see their faults. I shall lie basely to help them. <laughs> and there are passages whose sheer beauty stops the heart, as when Rhoda says, the gold has faded between the trees and a slice of green lies behind them, elongated like the blade of a knife seen in dreams or some tapering island on which nobody sets foot. In the waves, Virginia Woolf came closest to fulfilling her aesthetic ideal. This ideal is a fiction in which the stuff of realistic fiction, money, class, social placement, the details of family connection is notable for its absence. And attention is paid only to that which reveals the inner life. In her essay, Mr. Bennett and Mrs. Brown, in which she asserts that the inner life of the ordinary woman on the train, Mrs. Brown, is the true business of the modern novelist, she asserts her creed. I was strongly tempted, she disingenuously says, to manufacture a three-volume novel about the old lady's son and his adventures crossing the Atlantic and her daughter and how she keeps a milliner's shop in Westminster, though such stories seem to me the most dreary, irrelevant, and humbugging affairs in the world. But if I had done that, I should have escaped the appalling effort of saying what I meant. And to have got at what I meant, I would have had to go back and back, to experiment with one thing and another, to try this sentence and that, referring each sentence to my vision. This decision, of course, deprives the reader of many of the pleasures of fiction, even the experimental. We have none of Proust's delicious biting satire. 
We miss Dostoevsky's speculations about the nature of moral choice. But in focusing so intently upon the task of the waves, Virginia Woolf triumphantly realized the goal she had set for herself in the privacy of her diary. I want, she said, to tell the truth and create something of beauty. Thank you. I'm Janet Malcolm. I'm going to read a passage from A Sketch of the Past, a memoir Virginia Woolf wrote in 1939, two years before her death. She's remembering the death of her mother, Julia Stevens, in May 1895, at the age of 49. Julia died of what was thought to be rheumatic fever. At the time, Virginia was 13, her sister Vanessa was almost 16, her brother Toby was 15, and her brother Adrian was 12. Julia left three children from her first marriage to Herbert Duckworth also, George, Gerald, and Stella. Led by George, with towels wrapped around us and given each a drop of brandy and warm milk to drink, we were taken into the bedroom. I think candles were burning and I think the sun was coming in. At any rate, I remember the long looking glass with the drawers on either side and the washstand and the great bed on which my mother lay. I remember very clearly how even as I was taken to the bedside, I noticed that one nurse was sobbing and a desire to laugh came over me. And I said to myself, as I've often done at moments of crisis since, I feel nothing, whatever. Then I stooped and kissed my mother's face. It was still warm. She had only died a moment before. Then we went upstairs into the day nursery. Perhaps it was the next evening that Stella took me into the bedroom to kiss mother for the last time. She had been lying on her side before. Now she was lying straight in the middle of her pillows. Her face looked immeasurably distant, hollow and stern. When I kissed her, it was like kissing cold iron. Whenever I touch cold iron, the feeling comes back to me, the feeling of my mother's face, iron, cold, and granulated. I started back. Then Stella stroked her cheek and undid a button on her nightgown. She always liked to have it like that, she said. When she came up to the nursery later, she said to me, forgive me, I saw you were afraid. She had noticed that I had started. When Stella asked me to forgive her for having given me that shock, I cried. We had been crying off and on all day and said, when I see mother, I see a man sitting with her. Stella looked at me as if I had frightened her. Did I say that in order to attract attention to myself? Or was it true? I cannot be sure, for certainly I had a great wish to draw attention to myself. But certainly it was true that when she said, forgive me, and thus made me visualize my mother, I seemed to see a man sitting bent on the edge of the bed. It's nice that she shouldn't be alone, Stella said after a moment's pause. Of course, the atmosphere of those three or four days before the funeral was so melodramatic, histrionic, and unreal that any hallucination was possible. We lived through them in hush, in artificial light. 
Rooms were shut. People were creeping in and out. People were coming to the door all the time. We were all sitting in the drawing room round father's chair, sobbing. The hall reeked of flowers. They were piled on the hall table. The scent still brings back those days of astonishing intensity. But I have one memory of great beauty. A telegram had been sent to Toby at Clifton. He was to arrive in the evening at Paddington. George and Stella whispered together in the hall about who was to go and meet him. To my relief, Stella overcame some objection on George's part and said, but I think it would, be, it would do her good to go. And so I was taken in a cab with George and Nessa to meet Toby at Paddington. It was sunset, and the great glass dome at the end of the station was blazing with light. It was glowing red and yellow, and the iron girders made a pattern across it. I walked along the platform, gazing with rapture at this magnificent blaze of color, and the train slowly steamed into the station. It impressed and exalted me. It was so vast and so fiery red. The contrast of that blaze of magnificent light with the shrouded and curtained rooms at Hyde Park Gate was so intense. Also, it was partly that my mother's death unveiled and intensified, made me suddenly develop perceptions as if a burning glass had been laid over what was shaded and dormant. Of course, this quickening was spasmodic, but it was surprising as if something were becoming visible without any effort. To take another instance, I remember going into Kensington Gardens about that time. It was a hot spring evening, and we lay down on the grass, Nessa and I, in the long grass behind the flower walk. I had taken the golden treasury with me. I opened it and began to read some poem, which it was, I forget. It was as if it became altogether intelligible. I had a feeling of transparency in words when they cease to be words and become so intensified that one seems to experience them, to foretell them as if they develop what one is already feeling. I was so astonished that I tried to explain the feeling. One seems to understand what it's about, I said awkwardly. I suppose Nessa has forgotten. No one could have understood from what I said the queer feeling I had in the hot grass that poetry was coming true. Nor does that give the feeling. It matches what I have sometimes felt when I write. The pen gets on the scent. I'm Elaine Showalter, and I'm going to talk about a room of one's own. A room of one's own must be the most popular book title that any author has ever written. Since its publication in 1929, Virginia Woolf's witty manifesto has not only become the mandatory reference for every feminist literary critic, but it's also inspired the titles of scores of books on subjects very remote from Woolf's subject, The Conditions of Artistic Creation. I did a quick search of the Princeton Library catalog looking at books published only since 1988 and found the following variants and homage. 
a place of one's own, a life of one's own, a profession of one's own, a field of one's own, a garden, a house of one's own, a studio, a school of one's own, a hut of one's own. <laughs> a mine of one, one's own. This is for, for women prospectors. <laughs> there are books on a journey of one's own, a view, a faith, an art, and a style of one's own. And ominously, too, there are books on a doctor of one's own, a death of one's own, a corpse of one's own. <laughs> and a courtroom of one's own. Somebody has even written a book called A Trumpet of One's Own. And I think that Virginia Woolf, who as you know was not in favor of tooting one's own horn, would have been astonished and probably amused by the fame of her title, let alone the extraordinary influence of her book. A Room of One's Own had its beginning in two lectures on women in fiction, which she delivered at Newnham and Girton, the women's colleges of Cambridge University, in October 1928. And in her diary, Wolfe was more than usually ironic and self-critical about her performance. Thank God, she wrote, my long toil at the women's lecture is this moment ended. I am back from speaking at Girton in floods of rain. Starved but valiant young women, that's my impression. Intelligent, eager, poor, destined to become schoolmistresses in shoals. And I blandly told them to drink wine and have a room of their own. <laughs> I felt elderly and mature, and nobody respected me. Very little reverence or any of that sort of thing about. As she finished revisions on the book, Wolf continued to be skeptical. I've just set the last correction to women in fiction or a room of one's own, and I shall never read it again. Good or bad? It has an uneasy life in it, I think. You feel the creature arching its back and galloping on, although as usual, much as watery and flimsy and pitched in too high a voice. And on the very eve of its publication, she predicted that it would not be well received. The press will be kind and talk of its charm and sprightliness, and I shall be attacked for a feminist and hinted at for a sapphist. <laughs> I'm afraid it will not be taken seriously. The night of publication, she dreamed that she had a fatal heart disease that would kill her in six months. But she woke up to find that A Room of One's Own was selling very well, and the Estonian ambassador had invited her to lunch. <laughs> now, of course, Wolf's successors have all taken Room of One's Own very seriously indeed. And in it, of course, she told those disrespectful young women of Cambridge that a woman must have money and a room of her own if she is to write fiction. The room, moreover, must have a lock on the door. And the 500 pounds, ideally, should be earned, although Wolfe's narrator, uh, Mary Beaton, admits that hers is a legacy. 
the room is not just a material space. It's not just a literal office or a separate chamber. 500 a year stands for the power to contemplate, Wolf explains, and a lock on the door means the power to think for oneself. And finally, she insists, financial independence and privacy doesn't mean separation, it doesn't mean isolation or ghettoization. When I ask you to earn money and have a room of one's own, she says, I'm asking you to live in the presence of reality, to live an invigorating life. As Wolf's details and images, especially these images of starved young women, hinted that invigorating life should also include a wine cellar and a dining hall of one's own. And it's amazing, always to me, to read the attention this most famously anorexic of novelists pays to good food as she contrasts the lavish cuisine of Trinity College, the men's college, with the beef, custard, and prunes of the women's college. For one cannot think well, she notes. One cannot love well, sleep well, if one has not dined well. And I suspect she also means one cannot write well. This section of the book about the food at Cambridge University made such an impression on me when I was a student and first read A Room of One's Own that in 1973, when I first visited Cambridge University and got to have dinner at Trinity College, I noted down the menu in the margins of my paperback copy of Room of One's Own, and this is what we had. Chef salad, chicken Washington, new potatoes, peas, creme brulee, crab on toast, port, Madeira, sauterne, claret, biscuits, cheese, peaches, coffee, cigars, brandy, and seltzer. <laughs> How anybody at all ever wrote anything after such a dinner <laughs> is still a mystery to me, and I think maybe prunes and custard had something to be said for them. But the part of the book that most readers remember best, probably, is Wolfe's invocation of Judith Shakespeare, the sister of literary genius Shakespeare might have had, who would not have been able to become a great poet and playwright, but would instead have killed herself in despair. And in her famous conclusion, Wolfe called upon the women of 1928 to work to make possible uh, that when Shakespeare's sister is born again, she shall be able to live and to write her poetry. If we live another century or so, if we have 500 a year, each of us, in rooms of our own, if we have the habit of freedom and the courage to write exactly what we think, then the opportunity will come, and the dead poet who was Shakespeare's sister will put on the body, which she has so often laid down drawing her life from the lives of the unknown who were her forerunners, as her brother did before, she will be born. Now, as an American, I'm always very struck by how much importance Wolfe placed on the story of Shakespeare's sister and this coming of the great female literary messiah. Because Americans have never been so reverent, uh, or at least American men have not been so reverent. In 1850, as long ago as that, Herman Melville, who was writing a review of Hawthorne, refused to be impressed with Shakespeare at all. Shakespeare has been approached, he declared. There are minds that have gone just as far as Shakespeare into the universe. Melville argued, in fact, that to worship Shakespeare showed a want of gumption and proper American democratic feeling. This absolute adoration of Shakespeare has grown to be a part of our Anglo-Saxon superstition. And what sort of belief is this for an American? 
a man who was bound to carry Republican progressiveness into literature as well as into life. And Melville ends by claiming already in 1850, not a century in the future as, as Wolfe suggests much later, in 1850, men not much inferior to Shakespeare are being born on the banks of the Ohio. <laughs> the day will come, he predicts, when you shall say, who reads a book by an Englishman that is modern? Virginia Woolf was by no means a superstitious follower of received literary ideas, but she would not have been so confident about the future of women's writing. And perhaps it's independence or braggadocio or gumption that's made many brash American women readers of Woolf, including myself, so eager to update or democratize or modernize and retitle a room of one's own. In 1977, Marilyn French's feminist novel, The Women's Room, seemed like a response to Woolf. In 1978, I wrote that if the room of one's own becomes a retreat, a feminine secession or escape from male power, logic, and even violence, it can be a tomb. Alice Walker, in an essay called One Child of One's Own, offered her own response to Wolfe's prescription. And most recently, Camille Paglia has announced that a room of one's own is already too bourgeois for my subversive generation. <laughs> whose brash rock council says, get out of the house and keep on running, a car of one's own, <laughs> is the mode of American Amazonism. But whether in a car or a truck or an SUV, we're all still following in Wolf's path. In her superb biography of Virginia Woolf, Hermione Lee concluded that no critic can have the last word on Woolf because her story is reformulated by each generation. She takes on the shape of difficult modernist, preoccupied with questions of form, of comedian of manners, or neurotic highbrow esthete, or inventive feminist, or pernicious snob, or Marxist, or historian of women's lives, or victim of abuse, or lesbian heroine, or cultural analyst, depending on who's reading her, and when, and in what context. And the debates she arouses over madness, over modernism, over marriage, over Shakespeare and his sister, cannot be concluded, and will go on being argued, Hermione Lee says, well after this book is published, and I would say well after this evening is over. Women may be waiting around for Shakespeare's sister even longer than for Godot, <laughs> but we'll each have a wolf of our own. Thank you. That was amazing, wasn't it? What we just heard. Um, it falls to me to read a section from uh, this great writer. And I was just thinking as she was speaking there about um, somebody who once said, a father, actually a very pompous father of a friend of mine, who said, who needs myth when we've got history? <laughs> <And> <laughs> I first 
I'm, I'm not meant to talk about it, I'm going to just do the reading, but I'm, I first got very involved with uh, Virginia Woolf when I remember reading her diaries, as many people must have in adolescence. And there's one section where her parents, who so politely died when she was young, as you know with her sister, <laughs> so that they could move into their decadent house in, in Bloomsbury, and she, she lived there. And I think Lytton Strait, she lived either down the road or upstairs or something, and he was there. And there's a marvellous section where, they, where she says... We drank coffee instead of tea, but she said that we sat around one day, Nessa and Clive Wolf, or Clive, what's his name, and, and Lytton Strachey, and there was complete silence for ages. And finally, Lytton, pointing to a stain on Nessa's dress, said, Seaman. <laughs> and she says, she writes then in capitals, Seaman. Seaman. Can one say it? <laughs> all too frequently on American television. By anyway, let's see about that. <laughs> yeah. Here is, um, I'm going to read a little bit from To the Lighthouse. Um, but before that, I wanted to read just a tiny bit, to, as you've heard a bit about A Room of One's Own. But there's a wonderful section where she just writes about reality. Um, what she does, of course, into the lighthouse, which is incidentally very difficult to read because bad text often makes very good drama and vice versa. So it's a very, it, it needs everybody to sort of tune into its delights, which are, of course, myriad. But she writes about reality, which I think is useful in A Room of One's Own. What is meant by reality? It would seem to be something very erratic, very undependable, now to be found in a dusty road, now in a scrap of newspaper in the street, now in a daffodil in the sun. It overwhelms one walking home beneath the stars and makes the silent world more real than the world of speech. And then there it is again, in an omnibus, in the uproar of Piccadilly. But whatever it touches, it fixes and makes permanent. That is what remains over when the skin of the day has been cast into the hedge. That is what is left of past time and of our loves and hates. Now, the writer, as I think, has a chance to live more than other people in the presence of this reality. It is his business to find it and collect it and communicate it to the rest of us. So at least I infer from reading Lear or Emma or La Recherche du Temps Perdu, for the reading of these books seems to perform a curious couching operation on the census one sees more intensely afterwards. The world seems bared of its covering and given an intenser life, so that when I ask you to earn money and have a room of your own, I am asking you to live in the presence of reality, an invigorating life, it would appear, whether one can impart it or not. Do not dream of influencing other people. I would say, if I knew how to make it sound exalted. <laughs> Think of things in themselves. And that's very much what she does do, of course, in To the Lighthouse, um, possibly her greatest novel. But before she, I mean, after she wrote it, she wrote a letter, which I came across, one of her, what, a letter. <laughs> um, she never seemed to do anything else, did she? I mean, she wrote a um, but she, she wrote a letter to Vita Sackville West, and... Um, she had sent her a copy of To the Lighthouse. And I just think it's, it's, it's interesting in orientating oneself towards it through her own words. And what she said is she wrote, Darling Vita, <laughs> God, what a generous woman you are. 
your letter in praise of To the Lighthouse has just come, and I must answer it, though in chaos, Nellie returning, her doctor, her friends, her diet, etc. I was honest, though, in thinking you wouldn't care for the lighthouse. Too psychological, too many personal relationships, I think. Uh, this is said not of the dummy copy. The dinner party is the best thing I ever wrote. The one thing that I think justifies my faults as a writer. This damned method. Because I don't think one could have reached those particular emotions in any other way. I don't know if I'm like Mrs. Ramsay, as my mother died when I was 13. Probably it is a child's view of her, but I have some sentimental delight in thinking that you like her. She has haunted me, but then so did that old wretch, my father. Do you think it sentimental? Do you think it irreverent about him? I should like to know. I, I was more like him than her, I think, and therefore more critical. But he was an adorable man and somehow tremendous. VW. In brackets, oh, I forgot, Virginia Woolf. God knows why she went there. So here it is, the, the, the dinner party. The cook had spent three days over that dish. And she must take great care, Mrs. Ramsay thought, diving into the soft mass to choose a specially tender piece for William Banks. And she peered into the dish with its shiny walls, and its confusion of savory brown and yellow meats, and its bay leaves, and its wine, and thought, this will celebrate the occasion. A curious sense rising in her, at once freakish and tender of celebrating a festival, as if two emotions were called up in her, one profound, for what could be more serious than the love of man for woman? What more commanding, more impressive, bearing in its bosom the seeds of death? At the same time, these lovers, these people entering into illusion, glittering eyes, must be danced round with mockery, decorated with garlands. <clears throat> it is a triumph, said Mr. Banks, laying his knife down for a moment. He had eaten attentively. It was rich, it was tender, it was perfectly cooked. But uh, how did she manage things in the depths of the country, he asked her. She was a wonderful woman. All his love, all his reverence had returned, and she knew it. It is a French recipe of my grandmother's, said Mrs. Ramsay, speaking with a ring of great pleasure in her voice. Of course it was French. <laughs> what passes for cookery in England is an abomination, they agreed. It is putting cabbages in water, it is roasting meat till it is like leather, it is cutting off the delicious skins of vegetables in which said Mr. Banks, all the virtue of the vegetable is contained. <laughs> and the waste, said Mrs. Ramsay, a whole French family could live on what an English cook throws away. <laughs> Spurred on by her sense that William's affections had come back to her and that everything was all right again and that her suspense was over and that she now was free both to triumph and to mock, she laughed, she gesticulated, till Lily thought, how childlike, how absurd she was sitting there with all her beauty opened again in her, talking about the skins of vegetables. There was something frightening about her. She was irresistible. Always she got her own way in the end, Lily thought. 
Now she had brought this off. Paul and Minta, one might suppose, were engaged. Mr. Banks was dining here. She put a spell on them all by wishing so simply, so directly. And Lily contrasted that abundance with her own poverty of spirit and supposed that it was partly that belief for her face was all lit up without looking young. She looked radiant in this strange, this terrifying thing which made Paul Rayner sitting at her side, all of a tremor, yet abstract, absorbed, silent. Mrs. Ramsay, Lily felt, as she talked about the skins of vegetables, exalted that, worshipped that, held her hands over it to warm them, to protect it, and yet, having brought it all about, somehow laughed, led her victims, Lily felt, to the altar. It came over her now, the emotion, the vibration of love. How inconspicuous she felt herself by Paul's side. When did um, Minta lose her brooch? she said shyly. He smiled, the most exquisite smile, veiled by memory, tinged by dreams. He shook his head on the beach, he said. I'm going to find it, he said. I'm getting up early. This being kept secret from Minter, he lowered his voice and turned his eyes to where she sat, laughing beside Mr. Ramsay. Lily wanted to protest violently and outrageously her desire to help him, envisaging how, in the dawn, on the beach, she would be the one to pounce on the brooch, half hidden by some stone, and thus herself be included among the sailors, the adventurers. But what did he reply to her offer? She actually said with an emotion that she seldom let appear, let me come with you. And he laughed. <laughs> he meant yes or no. <laughs> <laughs> either perhaps, but it was not his meaning. It was the odd chuckle he gave, as if he had said, <laughs> throw yourself over the cliff if you like. <laughs> I don't care. He turned on her cheek the heat of love, its horror, its cruelty, its unscrupulosity. It scorched her, and Lily, looking at Minter, being charming to Mr. Ramsay at the other end of the table, flinched. For at any rate, she said to herself, catching sight of the salt cellar and the pattern, she need not marry. Thank heaven. She need not undergo that degradation. Such was the complexity of things, for what happened to her especially staying with the Ramses was to be made to feel violently two opposite things at the same time. That's what you feel was one. That's what I feel was the other. And then they fought together in her mind as now. It is so beautiful, so exciting, this love, that I tremble on the verge of it and offer, quite out of my own habit, to look for a brooch on a beach. Also, it is the stupidest, the most barbaric of human passions and turns a nice young man with a profile like a gems, Paul's was exquisite, into a bully with a crowbar. Yet she said to herself, from the dawn of time, odes have been sung to love, wreaths heaped and roses, and if you asked nine people out of ten, they would say they wanted nothing but this love, while all the women, judging from her own experience, would all the time be feeling, this is not what I want. There's nothing more tedious, puerile and inane than this, yet it is also beautiful and necessary. <laughs> well then, well then, she asked somehow, expecting the others to go on with the argument. Then, said Mr. Banks, there's the liquid the English call coffee. <laughs> coffee, said Mrs. Ramsay, but it was much more a question. She was thoroughly roused, Lily could see, and talked very emphatically of real butter and clean milk. Speaking with warmth and eloquence, she described the iniquity of the English dairy system and in what state milk was delivered to the door. 
Lily, anyhow, agrees with me. <laughs> and so drew her in, a little fluttered, a little startled, for she was thinking about love. They were both out of things. Mrs. Ramsay had been thinking, both Lily and Charles Tansy, both suffered from the glow of the other two. He, it was clear, felt himself utterly in the cold. No woman would look at him with Paul Rayleigh in the room. Poor fellow. Still, he had his dissertation, the influence of something or somebody upon something. <laughs> he could take care of himself. With Lily, it was different. She faded under Minter's glow. Everything about her was so small. Yet, thought Mrs. Ramsay, comparing her with Minter, as she claimed to help for Lily, could bear her out. She talked no more about her dairies than her husband did about his boots. I mean, he would talk for an hour about his boots. Of the two, Lily, at 40, will be better. There was in Lily's a thread of something, a, a flare of something, something of her own, which Mrs. Ramsay liked very much indeed, but no man would, she feared. Anyway, she hovered like a hawk suspended, like a flag, floated in an element of joy, which filled every nerve of her body fully and sweetly, not noiselessly, solemnly rather, for it arose, she thought, looking at them all eating there, from her husband and children and friends, all of which, rising in this profound stillness, seemed now, for no special reason, to stay there like smoke, like a fume rising upwards, holding them safe together. Nothing need be said. Nothing could be said. There it was, all around them. It partook, she felt, carefully helping Mr. Banks to a specially tender piece of eternity. There is a coherence in things, a, a stability, something she meant is immune from change and shines out. She glanced at the window with its ripple of reflected lights. In the face of the flowering, the fleeting, the spectral like a ruby, so that again tonight she had the feeling that she had had once today already of peace, of rest, of such moments, she thought, the thing is made that endures. Thank you. I'm Cynthia Ozick. <laughs> what advantage was there for Virginia Stephen in marrying what she called a penniless Jew? And what did the penniless Jew gain in marrying Virginia Stephen? For Leonard Wolfe, two generations removed from the grandfather he describes as a black-whispered rabbinical Jew in a frock coat, Virginia was, like his vision of Cambridge, compounded of long years of history and great traditions and famous names and a profoundly civilized life. His grandfather's world, he appeared to believe, was the opposite of all these things. Virginia thought so too. You seem so foreign, she told him. In Virginia, Leonard married a kind of escutcheon. She represented the finest grain of the finest stratum of England. For Leonard, Virginia was England. And what was this foreign-seeming penniless Jew for Virginia? 
He was what no one else among her suitors in the Bloomsbury circle could have been. He was her nurse. There was lacking in all these intelligent men, and indeed in their type in general, so many of them her brother Toby's Cambridge friends, the kind of moral and sexual seriousness that is usually disparaged as uxoriousness. It was a trait that Leonard invincibly possessed and that Clive Bell, for instance, despised as, quote, provincial and puritanical, an enemy to all that was charming and amusing in life. No one else in that milieu could have survived, surely not his husband, Virginia's recurrent spells of madness. Of all her potential husbands, only Leonard Wolfe emerged as fit. Of Bloomsbury's potential wives, only Virginia emerged as fit for Leonard. He was fit for her because her madness, especially in combination with her innovative genius, demanded the most grave, minutely persevering, and attentive service. She was fit for him, not simply because she represented Bloomsbury in its most resplendent flowering of originality and luminousness. What Leonard needed in Virginia was not so much her genius as her madness. It made possible for him the one thing Bloomsbury had no use for. It allowed him the totality of his seriousness unchecked. It used his seriousness. It gave it legitimate occupation. It made it both necessary and fearsome. And he claimed it made her serious. Without the omnipresent threat of disintegration, freed from the oppression of continuous vigil against breakdown, what might Virginia's life have been? It was his wife's insanity, in short, that made tenable the permanent, the secure presence in Bloomsbury of Leonard himself. Her madness fed his genius for responsibility. It became a corridor of access to his genius. The spirit of Bloomsbury was not Leonard's. His temperament was against it. Bloomsbury could have done without him. So could a sane Virginia. All the foregoing is Leonard's half-hidden view, sometimes overt, sometimes shadowy. Seen through Leonard's eyes, Virginia is, in effect, always on the verge of lunacy. I am quite sure, he tells us in his autobiography, that Virginia's genius was closely connected with what manifested itself as mental instability and insanity. The creative imagination in her novels the ability to leave the ground in conversation and the voluble delusions of the breakdown all came from the same place in her mind. Proust is right to tell us to go to a writer's books, not to her loyalties. Seen through her books, Virginia Woolf is never unstable, never lunatic. Despite Leonard's testimony, what she achieved as a stylist cannot be explained through linking it with madness. The diaries give glimpses of rationalized prefigurations, how moths become waves. She knew her destination months before she arrived. She was in control of her work. She did what she meant to do. If the novels are too imaginatively astonishing to be persuasive on this point, if they are too waywardly grasped by the drifting arrogances of the dream life, then the essays will convince. 
In the essays, the control of brilliant minutiae is total. Historical and literary figures, the particulars of biography, society, nationality, geography. She is a courier for the past. The language and scope of the essays astound. The range is from Chaucer through Montaigne, through Elizabethan's major and minor, through Swift and Stern and Lord Chesterfield and Cooper. She was interested also in the lives of women, especially writers. She studies Fanny Burney, Sarah Coleridge, the poet's daughter, Dr. Johnson's Mrs. Thrale, and Dorothy Osborne, a talented letter writer of the 16th century. The autonomous authority of the fiction, the more public authority of the essays, are the antidotes to Leonard's Virginia. Virginia Woolf's scene whole is also the antidote to her current status as an avatar of feminist separatism. Though one of her themes was women in history, several of her themes rather, she took her women one by one, not as a race, species, or nation, presumably she would have mocked the invention of courses in women's history. What she cared for, as a room of one's own both lucidly and passionately lays out, was access to a unitary and unifying culture. She shunned separatism, self-preoccupation, and what she once called the damned egotistical self. She wrote Orlando and the Waves and the Lighthouse out of the delighted conviction that the delimitation of the imagination was a circumscribing falsehood the notion of male and female states of intellect and feeling, hence of prose, ultimately of culture, would have been the occasion of a satiric turn for Virginia Woolf, so with the idea of a politics of sex. She licked envelopes once or twice for the Adult Suffrage League, but Clive Bell reports that she, quote, made merciless fun of the flag-waving fanaticism of the activists. She was not political, or perhaps just political enough, as when Chekhov notes that writers should engage themselves in politics only enough to protect themselves from politics. She explicitly denigrated the idea of granting places in institutions as a kind of group reparation. She thought it offensive to her own earned prestige and once took revenge on the notion. In 1935, E.M. Forster, a member of the committee of the London Library, informed her that a debate was underway concerning the admission of women members. No women were admitted. Six years later, Virginia Woolf was invited to serve. She said she would not be a sop she ought to have been invited years earlier on the same terms as Forster, as a writer, not in 1941, when she was already 59, as a woman. Virginia Woolf was a practitioner of her profession from an early age. She was not deprived of an education, rather of a particular college. She grew rich and distinguished. She developed her art on her own line, according to her own sensibilities, and was acclaimed for it. She was an elitist and must be understood as such. She was no martyr to women's oppression unless language has become so flaccid that being on occasion patronized begins to equal death for the sake of an ideal or life among the Taliban. What she suffered from 
really, was only the minor inflammations of the literary temperament. Nor was she often patronized. Her fame encouraged her to patronize others. And her fame, as our celebration tonight emphasizes, was and is in no danger. In the 60 years since her death, her reputation as an imperial novelist of the 20th century has deepened and effloresced. Partisanship has to a degree ruled our understanding of her history. She is recorded, not disinterestedly, as a mad woman whose gift was brought to fruition by a solicitous husband. She is recorded, again not disinterestedly, as a feminist martyr. But the disinterested truth is this. If she has become for her readers nearly a fact of nature, it is as the consummate artist she knew herself to be. Thank you. Hello, I'm James Wood. Readers either worship or denigrate Virginia Woolf's use of stream of consciousness. And I will admit that there are times when her character's mental ambling can seem frustratingly opaque. And I begin to grumble to myself about the soft metaphysics of English leisure. But Woolf was a revolutionary, more even than Joyce in one respect, and precisely in the area of stream of consciousness. I believe that Woolf, with perhaps the example of the newly translated Chekhov in her mind, about whom she wrote in 1917, 1918, and 1919, introduced absent-mindedness in all senses of the phrase to English fiction. Consider Woolf's most delicate treatment of absent-mindedness into The Lighthouse. Readers will remember a lovely moment when Mrs. Ramsay, at dinner, in the lovely scene that was read so brilliantly by Fiona Shaw, thinks well of her husband, and then a minute later, Wolf writes that Mrs. Ramsay felt as if somebody had been praising her husband to her and their marriage, and she glowed all over without realizing that it was she herself who had praised him. <laughs> Thus, comically and lyrically, Mrs. Ramsay travels out of herself, forgets herself for a moment, and we experience this self-forgetfulness in the same way as Mrs. Ramsay does. But an even finer passage occurs, I think, about 20 pages into the novel. For the first 20 pages of To the Lighthouse, more or less, we've been seeing things through Mrs. Ramsay's drifting thoughts. She thinks about how much her son wants to go to the lighthouse. She is cross with Tansley for saying that the weather will not be good enough for the trip. She thinks a little bit about Tansley and her husband's earnest followers. We are then told that Mrs. Ramsay is sitting and looking out of the window at the lawn. She sees Augustus Carmichael, the poet, and she sees Lily Briscoe painting and decides that Lily Briscoe is not really a serious artist. And suddenly Mrs. Ramsay remembers that Lily is painting her, painting Mrs. Ramsay, and that, as Wolfe writes, she, Mrs. Ramsay, was supposed to be keeping her head as much in the same position as possible for Lily's picture. Now, perhaps this doesn't seem like a very remarkable event, but consider the implications of what Wolfe has written. Mrs. Ramsay has forgotten and has only just remembered that she is at the center of Lily's painting. The remembrance is sudden to us too, 
it realigns the whole scene, for we realize that Mrs. Ramsey, just as she is actually at the center of Lily's portrait, is also actually at the center of this novel. Yet Mrs. Ramsey's slow forgetfulness, and ours too, has taken 20 pages to accumulate. 20 pages in which, in fact, Mrs. Ramsey has been at the center of the novel without realizing it until this moment. She has been at the center of the novel all along, and we have hardly noticed it, because seeing the world through her own drifting thought, we have inhabited her own invisibility. And we have experienced this self-forgetfulness, because it has been ours as readers too. It's not as if Wolf simply wrote as she could have done. It's not as if she simply told us Mrs. Ramsey forgot that she was at the center of the painting. No, the entire preceding 20 pages has been our experience of her forgetting this. Well, even so, you may say, this is a technical point, a literary sleight of hand. But think of how Wolf thus revolutionizes the scope of what could be done with a certain kind of upper-class female character, an elegant mother and mistress of the house. Wolf is able to convert a kind of cliché, the domestic absent-mindedness of a woman with too much time on her hands, into a ghostly ontology, whereby we discover ourselves in the process of forgetting ourselves. Mrs. Ramsey, we're told later on in the novel, dislikes anything that suggests that she has been sitting thinking. But that's precisely what we of readers have just done. We've seen Mrs. Ramsey sitting thinking. And she has seen herself in this mode, too. Mrs. Ramsey is the kind of woman, we're sure, who, if asked what she was thinking about, would probably say nothing and instantly get up to busy herself with some domestic task. But Wolfe's delicate use of drifting thought has shown us that Mrs. Ramsey is never thinking of nothing, that we are always thinking of something, even if the thought is merely the process of forgetting something. Return one last time to that sentence. She was supposed to be keeping her head as much in the same position as possible for Lily's picture. Suddenly we realize that, in fact, Mrs. Ramsey's head has not been still, is never still. Yes, externally, it might have been as still as Lily Briscoe could want it. But inside her head, nothing has been still. Nothing has been in the same position. She has been, in the deepest sense, absent-minded. In Wolfe's novels, thought radiates outwards, as in a medieval town, from a beautifully neglected center. And it is we as readers who renovate this neglect as we read Wolfe. This perhaps was her greatest feminism. By endowing her female characters, like Mrs. Ramsay and Clarissa Dalloway, with truly random drifting thought, she endowed them with a freedom which had generally been seen by society as an idleness, as nothing more than the irrelevant freedom of housebound women sitting thinking about nothing. And this is a dangerous literary innovation, because such random thought will seem to hostile critics as precisely no more than the literary analog of that despised female idleness, all these women thinking about nothing, all these irrelevant thoughts. One still hears this about Wolfe. Yet that is the risk of random thought. It will seem irrelevant. For when thought is truly random, then remembered detail has no metaphysical superiority, no privilege over what has been forgotten. One of the reasons that random thought is random, that it is treading over what has been forgotten, over the corpses of thoughts. Thought then resembles the old fiendish punishment that used to be handed out in English boarding schools in which the victim had to color in every other square on a piece of graph paper. There is no necessary difference between a colored square and a blank one. 
The delicate question then becomes, what is the status of a relevant thought? Is it remembered data or forgotten data? Is it the very definition of the self or everything but the self? Are absent-mindedness and present-mindedness the same things? Do Clarissa Dalloway and Mrs. Ramsey remember themselves? Do they know who they are? St. Augustine points out in the Confessions that memory is partly convincing yourself of what you already really knew all along. We are always forgetting things until the moment when we actually remember them. And at that moment, are we really remembering them or paying a kind of tribute to their actual forgettability? What does Mrs. Ramsey think she is worth? Worth remembering or only worth forgetting? Surely Mrs. Ramsey is real to us in part because she seems real to herself. She is real to herself, but she does not know herself. In this way, Wolf turns female absent-mindedness into the most searching philosophy of the self, and we suffer with her heroines, who are suspended between forgetfulness and remembrance, between their fulfillment and their irrelevance. Thank you. Susan Sontag. I'm going to read most, but not all, of wonderful um, aria by Virginia Woolf called uh, The Moment, Summer's Night. The night was falling so that the table in the garden among the trees grew whiter and whiter, and the people round it more indistinct. An owl Blunt, obsolete-looking, heavy-weighted, crossed the fading sky with a black spot between its claws. The trees murmured, an airplane hummed like a piece of plucked wire. There was also, on the roads, the distant explosion of a motorcycle, shooting further and further away down the road. Yet, what composed the present moment? If you are young, the future lies upon the present like a piece of glass, making it tremble and quiver. If you are old, the past lies upon the present like a thick glass, making it waver, distorting it. All the same, everybody believes that the present is something, seeks out the different elements in this situation in order to compose the truth of it, the whole of it. To begin with, it is largely composed of visual and of sense impressions. The day was very hot. After heat, the surface of the body is opened as if all the pores were open and everything lay exposed, not sealed and contracted as in cold weather. The air wafts cold on the skin under one's clothes. The soles of the feet expand in slippers after walking on hard roads. Then the sense of the light sinking back into darkness seems to be gently putting out with a damp sponge the color in one's own eyes. Then the leaves shiver now and again as if a ripple of irresistible sensation ran through them as a horse suddenly ripples its skin. 
But this moment is also composed of a sense that the legs of the chair are sinking through the center of the earth, passing through the rich garden earth. They sink, weighted down. Then the sky loses its color perceptibly and a star here and there makes a point of light, then changes unseen in the day coming in succession seem to make an order evident. One becomes aware that we are spectators and also passive participants in a pageant. And as nothing can interfere with the order, we have nothing to do but accept and watch. Now little sparks, which are not steady but fitful, as if somebody were doubtful, come across the field. Is it time to light the lamp, the farmer's wives are saying. Can I see a little longer? The lamp sinks down, then it burns up. All doubt is over. Yes, the time has come in all cottages and all farms to light the lamps. Thus, then, the moment is laced about with these weavings to and fro, these inevitable down-sinkings, flights, lamp-lightings. But that is the wider circumference of the moment. Here in the center is a knot of consciousness, a nucleus divided up into four heads, eight legs, eight arms, and four separate bodies. They are not subject to the law of the sun and the owl and the lamp. They assist it. For sometimes a hand rests on the table, sometimes a leg is thrown over a leg. Now the moment becomes shot with the extraordinary arrow which people let fly from their mouths when they speak. He'll do well with his hay. The words let fall this seed, but also coming from that obscure face and the mouth and the hand so characteristically holding the cigarette. Now hit the mind with a wad, then explode like a scent, suffusing the whole dome of the mind with its incense flavor. Let fall from their ambiguous envelope the self-confidence of youth, but also its urgent desire for praise and assurance. If they were to say, but you're no worse looking than many, you're no different, people don't mark you out to laugh at you, then he should be at once so cock-a-hoop and so ungainly, makes the moment rock with laughter and with the malice that comes from overlooking other people's motives and seeing what they keep hid and so that one takes sides. He will succeed or no, he won't. And then again, this success, will it mean my defeat or won't it? All this shoots through the moment, makes it quiver with malice and amusement and the sense of watching and comparing. And the quiver meets the shore when the owl flies out and puts a stop to this judging, this overseeing. And with our wings spread, we too fly, take wing with the owl over the earth and survey the quietude of what sleeps, folded, slumbering, arm stretching in the vast dark and sucking its thumb to the amorous and the innocent, and a sigh goes up. Could we not fly too with broad wings and with softness and be all one wing, all embracing, all gathering, and these boundaries, these pryings over hedge into hidden compartments of different colors, be all swept into one color by the brush of the wing, and so visit in splendor augustly peaks. 
and there lie exposed, bare, on the spine, high up to the cold light of the moon rising. And when the moon rises, single, solitary, behold her, one, eminent over us. Ah, yes, if we could fly, 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 here the body is gripped and shaken, and the throat stiffens, and the nostrils tingle, and like a rat shaken by a terrier, someone sneezes, and the whole universe is shaken, mountains, snows, meadows, moon, higgledy-piggledy, upside down, little splinters flying, and the head is jerked up, down, hay fever, what a noise, there's no cure except spending hay time on a boat issuing from a white arm and a long shape, lying back in a film of black and white under the tree, which, down-sweeping, seems a part of that curving, that flowing, the voice, with its ridicule and its sense, reveals to the shaken terrier its own insignificance. And then the moment becomes harder, becomes intensified, diminished, begins to be stained by some expressed personal juice with the desire to be loved, to be held close to the other shape, to put off the veil of darkness and see burning eyes. And then comes the low of the cows in the field, and another cow to the left answers, and all the cows seem to be moving tranquilly, across the field, and the owl flutes off its watery bubble. But the sun is deep below the earth. The trees are growing heavier, blacker. No order is perceptible. There's no sequence in these cries, these movements. They come from no bodies. They are cries to the left and to the right. Nothing can be seen. We can only see ourselves as outlines cadaverous, sculpturesque, and it is more difficult for the voices to carry through the dark. The dark has stripped the fledge from the arrow, the vibrations that rise red, shiver as they pass through us. Then comes the terror, the exultation, the power to rush out unnoticed, alone, to be consumed, to be swept away, to become a rider on the random wind, the tossing wind, the trampling and neighing wind, the horse with the blown back mane, the tumbling, the foraging, he who gallops forever, no whither traveling, indifferent, to be part of the eyeless dark, to be rippling and streaming, to feel the glory run molten up the spine, down the limbs, making the eyes glow, burning, bright, and penetrate the buffeting waves of the wind. Everything's sopping wet. It's the dew off the grass. Time to go in. And then one shape heaves and surges and rises, and we pass trailing coats down the path towards the lighted windows, the dim glow behind the branches, and so enter the door, and the square draws its lines round us. And here is a chair, a table, glasses, knives, and thus we are boxed and housed, and will soon require 
a draft of soda water and to find something to read in bed. Thank you. Good evening, I'm Zoe Caldwell. These words were taken by Eileen Atkins from Virginia Woolf's diaries, and Eileen was supposed to have been here to read them, but she didn't come. <laughs> so I'm it. The dinner last night went off. We could both have wished that one's first impression of Catherine Mansfield was not that she stinks like a, well, civet cat that had taken to street walking. <laughs> In truth, I'm a little shocked by her commonness at first sight, lined so hard and cheap. However, when this diminishes, she is so intelligent and inscrutable that she repays friendship. We discussed Henry James and Catherine Mansfield was illuminating, I thought. I dined with the Sangers last night and enjoyed society. I wore my new black dress and looked, I dare say, rather nice. That's a feeling I very seldom have and I rather intend to enjoy it more often. <laughs> so Bertie Russell was attentive and we struck out like swimmers who knew their waters. Bertie is a fervid egoist, which helps matters. <laughs> and then what a pleasure, this mind on springs. If you had my brain, you would find the world a very thin, colorless place, he said. But my colors are so foolish, I said. You want them for your writing. God does mathematics, that's my feeling. It is the most exalted form of art. Art, I said. Well, there's style in mathematics as there is in writing. I get the keenest aesthetic pleasure from reading well-written mathematics. <laughs> my brain is not what it used to be. I'm past my best. The brain becomes rigid at 50 and I shall be 50 on a month or two. I don't expect any more emotional experiences. I don't think any longer that something is going to happen when I meet a new person. I said I disagreed with much of this, yet perhaps I did not expect very much to happen from talking to Bertie. <laughs> Thus, I did not ask him to come here. I enjoyed it, though, a good deal, and got home and drank cocoa in the kitchen. Lytton came to tea. Among other things, he gave us an amazing account of the British Sex Society, which meets at Hampstead. They were surprisingly frank, and 50 people of both sexes and various ages discussed without shame such questions as the deformity of Dean Swift's penis, whether cats use the WC, self-abuse, incest, incest between parent and child, where they are both unconscious of it, was, I think, the main theme derived from Freud. 
I think of becoming a member. <laughs> Lytton is one of the most supple of our friends. I don't mean passionate or masterful or original, but a person whose mind seems softest to impressions, least starched by any formality or impediment. This is his great gift of expression, of course, never to me at best in his writing. But making him, in some respects, the most sympathetic and understanding friend to talk to. And if one adds his particular flavor of mind, his wit and infinite intelligence, he is a figure not to be replaced by any other combination. Poor Tom Elliot. A true poet, I think. What they will call, in a hundred years, a man of genius. And this is his life. I stand for half an hour listening while he says that Vivian can't walk. Her legs are gone. What's the matter? No one knows. And so she lies in bed. What a vision of misery. Vivian in bed all day, Tom hurrying back lest she abuse him. This is our man of genius. At Garsington, there were Robert Bridges and H.G. Wells. These great men are so much like the rest of us. Wells, remarkable only for a combination of stockishness and acuity. He has a sharp nose and the cheeks and jowls of a butcher. He likes, I judge, rambling and romancing about the lives of other people. He romanced about the webs, said their books were splendid eggs, well and truly laid, but addled. <laughs> As for Bridges, he sprang from a rhododendron bush. A very lean and tall old man, very active, rather hoarse, talking incessantly. He raced me down into his library, where I asked to see the Gerard Manley Hopkins manuscripts, and sat looking at them with that gigantic grasshopper, Aldous Huxley, folded up in a chair close by. <laughs> I said how much I liked his poems, two of the short ones, <laughs> but was mainly pleased and gratified to find him so obliging and easy and interested Willie Maugham came in like a dead man whose beard and moustache had grown a little grisly after death. <laughs> and his lips are drawn back like a dead man's. He has small ferret eyes, a mechanical voice as if he had to raise a lever at each word. And it stiffens the talk into something hard, measured. He sat like an animal in a trap, and I could say nothing that loosed this dead man's jaw. Isherwood and I met on the doorstep. He is a slip of a willful boy with quicksilver eyes, nipped, jockey-like. That young man, said Willie Maugham, holds the future of the English novel in his hands. Which of our friends will interest posterity most. Maynard? So, if I had any regard for the future, I would use this hour to record what he said, lying extended on the sofa the other night. He is now supreme, mounted on his sick throne, a successful man. 
Thinking about my book on Roger, can I mention erection, I asked. No, you can't. I shouldn't mind you saying it. Such revelations have to be in key with their time. The time has not yet come. <laughs> Is he right, or only public school? <laughs> I meant to write reflections on my position as a writer. Apparently, I have been exalted to a very high position, say, about ten years ago, then was decapitated by Wyndham Lewis and Miss Gertrude Stein. And now I think, let me see, out of date, of course, not a patch on the young, yet wrote the waves, yet am unlikely to write anything good again. Am a second rate and likely, I think, to be discarded altogether. I think that's my public reputation at the moment. This autumn has been a tremendous revelation. It was a great season of liberation. Well, it is always doubtful to say how far one human being can be free. However, I secured a season of intoxicating exhilaration, nor do I intend to let myself pay for it with the usual black despair. I intend to circumvent that supervening ghost, that which always trails its damp wings behind my glories. I shall be very wary to be a straw on the river now and then, Passive, not striving to say this or this. If one does not lie back and sum up and say to the moment, this very moment, stay, you are so fair, what will be the one's gain dying? No, stay, this moment. No one ever says that enough. I am now going in to see Leonard and say, stay this moment. Let us go then exploring this summer morning when all are adoring the plum blossom and the bee and humming and hawing. Let us ask of the starling what he may think on the brink of the dustbin where he picks among the sticks combings of scullion's hair. What's life, we ask. Life, 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 cries the bird, as if he had heard.